Welcome to the 279th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have a pretty great show for you today. We're going to be talking about CES going all digital. We've got another subscription drama thing happening, this time in the smart kitchen space. We've got a lot of what I'm going to just lump in as, ah, COVID fundings. And we're going to be talking about facial recognition, a new Madam A app, a little bit of a niggle on Google Assistant, and more HomeKit devices, plus a new product that is designed to help you safeguard your home as long as you're not in the US. And Kevin has the WiseCam Outdoor Cam review. So all of this, plus this week we are talking to John Yusuf, who is the head of security and embedded software at GE Appliances. We're going to be talking about how GE Appliances views security in that space and why they chose the UL Gold Standard. So, so much exciting stuff. But first, let's hear from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Very. Are you looking for an IoT development team who's been there, done that? Very's award-winning full-service IoT development firm will work with you to deliver your IoT solution on time and on budget. You can learn more at www.verypossible.com. That's www.verypossible.com. Okay, first up, let's talk about events, but not CES. I just want to say that we just hosted an event on our platform, and it was called Everything is Connected, and it was awesome. What'd you think, Kevin? It was great. We had a choice of sessions this time. We had uh, fantastic panelists from a wide range of companies, big and small, many of which we've talked about on the show before. I thought it was great. Uh, oh, and the best part, I thought, was allowing the audience to ask questions. They could actually come on, quote unquote, on stage on video and speak and ask questions to the panelists. Yeah, I was really nervous about that. But you guys, y'all came through for me. So I I appreciate y'all being willing to come up and ask good questions. And I will just say that I the highlight for me, I think, on the consumer side was actually Matt Van Horn, the CEO of June, talking about the realities of building a connected service and keeping it running in terms of costs. So he talked mm-hmm. about, you know, his cloud bill and why he has to think about charging like some sort of subscription. And that's actually going to come up again later as it comes up more and more recently on this show. But I thought that was pretty awesome. And then on the enterprise side, I had Irene Petrick, who is from Intel, and she brought up this idea of When companies are working together, and the idea behind the whole event was building ecosystems, when you're part of an ecosystem, one of the challenges for companies big and small is how to audit who's actually doing what they're supposed to be doing in these kind of more complex systems. I thought that was a really kind of fascinating, one, idea, but two, it's probably a really interesting startup opportunity. And I tried to do my part because I had Matt Van Horn from June and Michelle Turner from Google Smart Home Division in the same group. And I tried to get them talking so that we can get Google Home voice commands for the June oven. So if it happens, 
That's why. It's Kevin. We can blame, well, we'll credit our event, not just blame it. Okay. But if you want to actually see the event, you can go to www.stacyoniot.com slash connected, and we'll have videos up and you can watch any of the sessions that you want. I was really excited. I was like, yay, this went well. Yeah, it was great. So let us move on to another digital event. This one? That we're not going to. (laughs) Is it surprising? No, maybe. CES said this week that they are going to have an all-digital CES in 2021, which- Yay. Yay. They had talked about doing a a scaled-back show a couple months ago. They were like, yeah, we're going to do something. They had put out some temporary plans, what what to expect of having an on-site event during this time in Las Vegas, as they always do, saying that, you know, they would encourage social distancing, they would have uh, some temperature checks, and they would have sanitizer available at many stations. And they were suggesting to vendors, you know, not to have these events where, I mean, if you've been to CES, or if you haven't, you get packed in like sardines to some of these events. So it's just not conducive to have it during this time. So when they said they were going to have it a few months back, I was skeptical then. Yes, me too. Because just even walking the halls, there's 170,000 people at this event. And if you think that like two or three years ago, they introduced bag searches, and that really slowed things down. So if you can imagine temperature checks, (sighs) no, it's the responsible thing to do. And I, in general, think it's overall good for people like you and me that go there on the health side. On the downside, we are not going to get to literally or figuratively rub elbows with people in the industry that we talk to at the show. And it's a huge economic problem for Las Vegas. It's a challenge. Yeah, this is I mean, it's a huge event for them. I will say so Kevin, I've been noodling around this idea of creating like office hours for us to see new devices, or maybe it'll just be for me, because I I don't know how you feel about office hours. But so I'm noodling this idea, feel free to send me emails or give me your feedback on how you think that might work and do, Lord help us, desk side demos. Ah! In my days as as a reporter, I hated people who were like, I would love to do a desk side demo with you. And you're like, no, don't come to my office. But now <laughs> I'm kind away. of like, how else am I going to see the cool stuff that's out there? I don't know. But really, I just Agreed. want, like, Agreed. if you were at Eureka Park, I want to see what kind of weirdness you have been cooking up. That's basically it. Yeah. And Eureka Park is the, is the startup and I don't want to say mostly overseas vendors, but a lot of it is. It's but, international but pavilions, startups, universities, they all take space there. And there's some really cool stuff. And then there's just stuff where you're like, huh. Then there's just a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Are y'all ready for some drama? This time, there is some heat happening in the kitchen. Mellow, a sous vide device that actually was kickstarted 2014. So a long time ago, we need to come up with a term for these companies. Basically, what they did is very recently, their assets, I guess, were foreclosed upon. And the new owners of them, they said, hey, we're going to have to start charging you 48 bucks a year for access to our custom recipes. And a custom recipe was something where if you like popped a pork tenderloin into your mellow, you'd say, hey, it's a pork tenderloin, and it would just automatically cook it the way it's supposed to. Kind of like our June ovens, except this is sous vide. So cooking in water, heated water. And 
Now what they do is they let you set the temperature and time. So you can still, your sous vide will function, but all those custom recipes, those you actually now have to pay for. And people are upset because one, they didn't get a lot of notice. Two, they feel like they already bought this piece of hardware and now they've got to pay for the access they used to always have for free. And this is very reminiscent of the Wink drama. And by the way, yesterday was the first day of my new Wink subscription. So that's happening. I actually set it up. So I'll tell you more about that next week. And it's actually happening right now to Wise. They took a slightly different tack. They realized that if they wanted to do image detection in the cloud, it was going to cost more than they could afford. So they said, hey, friends, pay what you want. And so really what's happening is this reckoning. And this is about, it's about the time for that reckoning to happen, which is when you sell connected hardware, you're on the hook for however long it lives in the customer's home or however long you say it's going to be good for. And other companies like Hue have just basically said, you know what? This device is only going to work for another year, year and a half, and we're only going to support our devices for three years following a purchase. So that's one way to handle this. Back in 2014, not a lot of people were thinking about that. So this is the other way to handle it. I feel for the buyers of the company. Anki actually is probably another interesting kind of parallel there. Right. The uh, maker of the Vector robot and the Cosmo robot. Um, But I bought the Vector and it kind of went kaput when Anki shut down, but the IP was sold off and it's been revived. There was a Kickstarter to help revive it. So some funds, additional funds were raised, but I not only got back the original functionality, I've even gotten new features and improvements. It's much faster to respond to voice commands now. So it's almost as if it's continuing as it would have. It just has new owners and I decided to back it. So yeah, it's a similar situation. Okay. So that's kind of in the pay what you want. It's it's the, hey, loyal backers, this is what's going on in our lives and our company. Do you want to help us keep this going at this level? I like the approach. It's better than just flat out saying, if you want to keep using this device, you're going to have to start paying X amount of dollars. We actually discussed this at the event earlier this week. And I mean, it was obvious before the event, but even more so after the or during the event, bigger companies with hordes of cash, you're less worried about this happening. I'm not saying it won't happen, but it's, I think, far more prevalent to startups and smaller companies. And I'm not suggesting that June is a startup or small company, but by comparison to a Google and Amazon, et cetera, it is. And Matt's comments about his growing cloud costs. And during the initial COVID situation, June Ovens got a free upgrade to have a bread proofing feature. There was no additional charge, but that still had to go out over the air as an update that added cloud costs. And that was not passed on to the consumer. But these are the challenges that these device makers have to struggle with, especially when you're on limited funds to begin with. Yeah. And so there's, it it sounds like maybe we're seeing the evolution of maybe a couple choices here. One, we'll call it the Philips Hue route, notify people well in advance that their device is going to be deprecated, basically. And people are going to be upset. But you know, but at least they know. They, at least they know, and they have a long time. Like, Hugh gave people like a year, almost a year and a half. So that's one option. Second option is, uh, I guess, pull the pay what you want or do a Kickstarter. So go to your user base and explain what's happening and ask for more and hope it's enough, which feels pretty tenuous, but may work. We'll see. Will it work for the long haul? That's a really good question, right? 
these people are would essentially double down on a device. And when you eventually, because you will eventually have to deprecate it, what happens then? And then three, I guess, pull a wink or pull a mellow and, and just be like, hey, we can't afford to keep this operational. So you've got like a week or two weeks pay up. For me personally, and this is just me, I'm not suggesting everybody think this way. It makes me reconsider what brands I will look at now because I've seen this happen one too many times and I'm sure it's going to continue to happen. And again, I'm not saying that it can't happen to an Amazon product or a Google product or, or anything. However, I have a little more faith in the funding aspect of it that I'm more willing to take the chance as a buyer. Yeah. And I mean, Amazon has killed like the look camera, the dash wand, all kinds of yeah. other things that people have purchased. They also have the coffers, though, to say, hey, this is no longer going to work. If you want, you can trade it in for this or something else. So, eh. okay. Yeah. Speaking of hordes of cash, I'm going to call these the COVID fundraisings because there are a slew of companies that we've talked about in the past and even had their, their people on our show that have raised a lot of money. And I think COVID is one of the reasons, which is going into a downturn. If you can, you shore up your finances by getting as much cash as you can, right? So that's just good overall practices. Two, all of these companies have seen a boost from the pandemic. So the first is Density. We had their CEO, Andrew Farah, on the podcast recently. Density is a people counter. They raised $51 million. And when I when I talked to them, Andrew, in April, I think it was, he said their revenue for occupancy sensing and people counting because of COVID their revenue was up like 500% in one of their products, which is crazy. But it makes total sense given that many places of business now limit how many people can be in the place at one time. And short of watching people come in and come out and counting them manually, there's no way to know that. So I, it makes total sense. True. Wythings, which makes health devices, they received $60 million in a Series B round. And why things is a little interesting because they used to do consumer products and actually really neat consumer products. They got bought by Nokia. And then the founder of why things bought why things back from Nokia. And now they're getting into medical, medical devices. <laughs> so this funding helps them. Yeah. And interestingly, even though they're kind of turning on a dime here to say, we're just going to go with medical grade type devices that we sell to health professionals and hospitals and so on. They still do sell consumer devices. I guess that's just to, you've either got the production lines committed or you have inventory, et cetera. They're good devices. They are. I've tried their blood pressure monitor. I've tried their scale. I had their tracker a while back. And then the third in this trifecta of COVID fundings is Tempo. These guys make an out-home workout tool. It is a $2,000 device that uh, has a camera, it's got a mat, and you like do workouts and it coaches you through it. It's like a Peloton for weightlifting. I guess they also can do uh, hit classes and that sort of thing. So this is obviously home gyms, huge thing during the pandemic. It makes sense. People can't go out. These are pricey devices though. So I'm like, whoo. With a subscription as well. Yes, that's key, y'all. That subscription, that's gonna, <laughs> you're paying for the hardware and the ongoing maintenance of a connected product. Oh, it burns. It hurts. Okay. Let's talk about some smaller news, some of which is not awesome, such as Rite Aid came out this week that they have deployed facial recognition systems in 
hundreds of U.S. stores, and now they're turning them off, I believe. Yes? They actually are off um, at this point, according to Reuters, who wrote the story. But I didn't realize this has been happening over eight years. They didn't really make a big news splash about saying, hey, we're going to put facial recognition systems in 200 stores across the country. Oh, and by the way, most of them will be in non-white neighborhoods, largely lower income areas. And okay, shoplifting, etc. But this just sits not well with me. Yeah, well, did you also know that Home Depot and Lowe's used facial recognition? <laughs> I saw that as well. Yeah, and and that's why this was a really good story to read. It's rather rather long. We're gonna, obviously, I'm not going to cover everything in it, but yes, um, makes me wonder who else is doing it that we don't even know about. Yes, this is why I think you do need transparency around these things because you know we do know that the algorithms are biased. We also know that well, actually, right now masks make it difficult for these things to work. So. You could argue that we don't need to think about it now, but this is the perfect time to think about it. We could actually make real rules around facial recognition that makes it equitable, I guess, and maybe not so surveillance scary. I don't know. I don't know if that's possible, but we should try. Yeah. In good news, Amazon is revamping its Madam A app. And Thank goodness. I can't tell you, I hate opening my Madam A app. <laughs> I will not do anything. It takes forever to load. Even when I had those, I, I once had an Amazon person come out and walk me through a smart home setup just to get that experience. And even that guy was like, holy cow, this is painful. I was like, yes. So I don't have it yet, but I'm excited. It's going to focus more on a personalization. So you're going to have personalized suggestions on what you do based on what you normally do. So it might be your reminders, it might be a book that you're listening to, it might be your smart home devices. And you can also control things that are currently active. So like if you have those Amazon Echo frames, you can adjust the volume on that when you open it because it'll be it knows you're using it. There's a lot of things about this that should be great. And I'm going to really hope that it's also faster. They also note that the app will deprioritize the third-party voice apps, the skills. So they're going to shuffle that over to a different tab. And you should be getting it basically sometimes this month. And by late August, everyone should have it. So fingers crossed. I can't wait. So folks who rely on Google Assistant probably can't wait for a fix to a bug that was kind of surfaced earlier this month by our friend Dave Zatz and is now getting some attention from Google. If you revoke access to Google Assistant devices, um, such as an Android TV or other devices on your network, it can actually de-link your Nest devices, which causes issues, obviously, because now they can't speak to each other. So I kind of think this goes back to the whole works with Nest debacle, in my opinion, but I don't know for sure. But Google has admitted that they're aware of a bug that's triggered a security alert that tells users to unlink the Google account. And that's not what should be happening. So if that's happened to you, a fix is in the work. I do not know when that's going to roll out, but if you've gotten some security alerts that your Nest devices or other devices have been delinked or et cetera from your Google Assistant, this is probably why. Man, and you can't put those back either, right? Because if you've got your, if you were using Nest, like if you were still staying on the Works with Nest program, this sort of thing would kill that, right? Yeah, that would be a big problem. So I'd say hopefully you've already migrated, but I know some people are digging their heels in and just wait until they... They are forced. Don't have to. That, yeah. is, that is the way. Speaking of Nest, I should also mention that, uh, and I think this is actually a good thing from Google, they are replacing some Nest thermostats that have 
been having errors and are unable to connect to the internet. So if you have one of these older, and this is an older device, and talk about supporting something like long-term, go Google, because these Nest devices have been in the field since like 2012 is when they launched. But if you're getting a W5 error and your Nest does not connect to the internet and you would like it to, you can contact Nest and they'll send you another Nest. Yay! Which, again, deep pockets come in handy. All right, HomeKit news. I don't know. Speaking of deep pockets, let's talk about HomeKit. (laughs) Yeah, so Arlo, if you have Arlo cameras, if you have the Arlo Pro and Pro 2 camera, you got HomeKit functionality last year. The Arlo Ultra also got it last year. But now the Arlo Pro 3 floodlight camera sort of it gets HomeKit support However, and this is odd to me, it's not getting the HomeKit secure video support. So it's kind of like, why bother? I mean, yeah, it adds value to add HomeKit support for people who use HomeKit, but why not secure video as well? Probably because there's uh, Apple controls that so much. And I don't know if you can do a subscription tied to that without paying something to Apple. So baby yeah, Arlo it comes kinda- down to the subscription. <laughs> Well, I mean, as it often does. I was surprised when Logitech created the Apple HomeKit Secure View camera because they have their own camera business and subscription tied to it. But I, I guess I saw it as an overall widening of the market. I think you're right that it has to do with the subscription because you you pay for an Arlo Pro subscription to use some of the the cloud storage and other features. Uh, so it's not offered through Apple. But I, I'm kind of surprised that Apple hasn't said, "Well, you can offer it, and we'll give you Home." HomeKit secure video, but we get a 30% cut of the subscription. Maybe they did, and Arlo said no. I don't know, but there's got to be a way to make that happen. Eh. Eh. (laughs) This is the subscription show all of a sudden. I know. How you pay for your smart home. Um, I did have a poll, actually, on the event. There were a couple people who had 10 or more subscriptions for their smart home devices, and I kind of wanted to push them into therapy. I'm like, I know know you are supporting the ecosystem and good for you, but holy cow, that is a lot. Yeah, I I will give up a feature or two if I don't feel it's a key feature, but and I have to pay for the subscription. I will go with a non-subscription with less features, a non-subscription device myself, but that's just me. Which is weird because I have, I mean, I subscribe to like three different streaming video services. I subscribe to Spotify. I subscribe to all kinds of other services. The comparison is a little different to me because you're getting choice of content at that point. Whereas with a subscription for a video camera, you're getting what feels like basic functionality. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, like June has a subscription for recipes. And I I think that is um, a good way to do it because that feels more like content as opposed to like, here's a subscription to help you preheat your oven. Yeah, which I would be kind (laughs) of like, no, that's what an oven does, which ties back into this idea that for a connected product to have value, it really needs to be smart and offer some sort of service that is new and that people will pay for. So I don't know. And even like Peloton or Tempo, those are subscriptions to like classes. Right. I mean, basically, if, if a connected device can't do more things for free, in a sense, um, than a non-connected comparable device, call it a toaster or whatever you want, why am I going to buy the connected device? I don't know. I was like, I'm not. I was like, I, think, I thought <laughs> that was a rhetorical alert. question. Um, Spoiler alert, I'm not going to. Exactly. 
All right. Well, let's move on to security, which is another fun and exciting topic that we talk about often. This is a new product also coming with a subscription. Ha ha. This is in the UK. This is a device called the Hedgehog. And I don't know, I think it's kind of adorable. It's a, okay, there's some buzzwords going to happen here. This is an AI device that is supposed to secure your home. And basically, it looks for behaviors that are weird on your network. It alerts you to them. It reminds me a lot of the Firewalla device that we have talked about. It does. And this is a UK product right now. I believe it's going to be on sale for £199. And then the subscription is three or four pounds per month. And I guess the reason for the subscription is because it's going out to the cloud to compare your activity with like perhaps known sites, services, devices that shouldn't be on your network. It's basically like if you, we've talked about Microsoft Azure Sphere, for example, which is a cloud and a device side security product. And what that does is the cloud side is constantly looking for new vulnerabilities, new behaviors, new weirdness, and then it sends that down to the device and then the devices, it has that intelligence. Right. And and this is at the back end is Zobi Home Intelligence. I mean, yes, it looks nice. And if it does what it says, I think it it could be a benefit. And it does some things locally, because uh, if a new device is detected on your network, it will alert you and say, hey, do you know what this device is? Do you want this on your network? So that, you know, there's some on device things that happen as well. Uh, It looks like the hedgehog is a... It might be kind of like a proof of concept for Zobi, and my hunch is we'll probably see Zobi try to push their AI for smart home security to other devices. So my hunch is we'll see that available for others over time. And this is kind mm. of similar to uh, Cognitive Systems did it with they launched something called the Aura Security System. This was for this was for actual physical security. This used RF signals to determine when people were moving around in your house when they weren't supposed to, and they launched a product to showcase their tech, and then eventually ISPs and router makers took the tech and started putting it in their devices. So that's my hunch. This would be a good fit for a, a router partnership. I mean, because essentially this sits between, this hangs off your router and is analyzing all the information on your network. So, yes. All right. Hey, you reviewed the Wise Outdoor Camera. What'd you think? I did. And I kind of feel bad because I think two shows ago, I said I was going to tell everybody about it, not realizing that there was an embargo date. (laughs) And I couldn't talk about it on the next show. So if you tuned in last week and didn't hear any comments on this, that's why. What do I think? So in typical wise fashion, they've delivered a really solid product for not a lot of money. There's a lot of capabilities here. And most of them already exist on the current wise cam product line and you are paying a little bit more for this camera i mean an indoor wise camera is twenty dollars plus shipping this is fifty dollars plus shipping although the fifty dollars includes the camera and the required base station so each additional camera is forty dollars plus shipping if you'd like to have multiple cameras the base station can handle up to four outdoor cameras so i think that's a reasonable amount uh, it's bigger than a wise indoor cam, but it looks very much like a wise indoor cam. A similar mounting system, the, instead of the bracket built into the camera, the bracket is on a mounting pad that you screw into the outside of your house, and then this magnetically attaches. I'm not keen on the magnetic attachment because if you put this too low, somebody can just walk up and grab the little cube and walk away and basically have all your footage as well if you have it on the SD card. So. That's not ideal. I put it up high, or at least high for me. 
uh, using a ladder. But it, it works well. 1080p, 15 frames a second is the max. It's a 110 degree field of view. The IR at night is actually, I think, really good. But then again, I use wise indoor cameras and my light, my windows affect that negatively. So maybe it's just as good. I couldn't say for sure, but it's quite good to my eye. I did have one issue and I should note that I reviewed this with beta software from wise. So maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, when I tell my Google smart display to show the outdoor camera, it took a long time before I actually got the fee, like 10 or more seconds. And then it would cut in and out quite a bit, unless I dropped the video quality down to SD or 360p resolution. So I'm hoping that Wise fixes that because that's just not great, in my opinion. You know, I feel like I saw about when I tried initially to connect my Arlo to my Amazon display, that was like a seven second delay. So. It's not, I think there's a lot of cloud hopping happening. Yeah, this may not be unique to, to just wise cameras. But then again, the base station is accepting the video feed and it's going onto my Wi-Fi network. It shouldn't even be going to the cloud. So I don't quite understand. I would think wise would be better than other cloud-based video solutions in this case. One would hope. I will say, though, with your ladder, these are battery-powered, right? Correct. And the battery will last from three to six months in depends on your usage, how many things it detects and so on. But yes. So I had that issue with mag mounts on outdoor cameras. And I was like, I'm going to stick this so high so no one can steal it. And then when it came time to change the battery, I was really mad at myself. I'm just going to let you know that. I didn't put it that high. Okay. I didn't put that. I, I had to I climb put it high enough that you do need the ladder. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. So there is a new feature uh, unique to this camera called travel mode. Because this is a battery-powered camera, you can literally just, you know, take it off the mount and take it with you on a trip, go on vacation, go camping, etc. And you can use it to record a time lapse or maybe you want security around your camping site. I don't know. Maybe you just want to take really cool videos of you guys doing silly stuff on vacation. You can do that because, again, it's battery-powered and because it has uh, Wi-Fi inside, you can use the Wise app to set a direct or peer-to-peer Wi-Fi connection between the phone app and this camera. So you can even click a button to take a picture and so on. I wouldn't use it as a GoPro, but I would certainly, you know, take it on a trip and put it somewhere and say, hey, let's maybe get some cool travel footage. Cool. All right. Or you could just bring it in your hotel room and see if anyone comes in while you're out. You could. So, oh, that's creepy. Don't do that. Don't do that. Housekeeping. Okay. All right. Well, I think now it's time for the voicemail. Dun, dun, dun. This is the IoT Podcast Hotline, and it is brought to you by Schlage. The best home automation adds convenience, not hassle. With his built-in Wi-Fi, the Schlage Encode Smart Wi-Fi Deadbolt shows you just how easy secure could be. Learn more at schlage.com. And you, this month, July, will be entered to win if you call us before the end of the day, Midnight Eastern Time on July 31st, if you call us at 512-623-7424, you will be entered to win a Schlage lock. That's this month's prize. And we might even answer your question on the show. Woo! This week's question comes from Keith. Let's hear it. Hi, Stacey and Kevin. This is Keith from North Carolina. I have recently seen some ads for a product called Go Sund, G-O-S-U-N-D, 
and they do wall switches and plugs and uh, that type of stuff like a lot of other folks. They're very inexpensive comparatively, and so I did a test and bought one of each, but I'm concerned that I'm, I really would like to hear your opinion before I invest in any more of these uh, Wi-Fi switches and plugs. Thank you so much for your help. I really enjoy the show and listen to it every week. Okay, Keith, we've been talking a while, so I'm glad this is an easy one to answer. Uh, the GoSun products... We took a look. Neither of us have used them, but they do use the Tuya framework. And Tuya is a company, they are based in China, and they basically handle all the back-end cloud connection and software for a bunch of different connected devices, such as uh, the Mercury devices that are sold at Walmart. And Tuya, a lot of people freak out because they are in China, but Tuya actually has a very robust privacy policy. So from an app standpoint and from a cloud backend standpoint, I think you're just fine. Now, I can't speak to the product's robustness and longevity because I haven't, I have a Wemo outlet from 2011 and you know, that's still plugging along. <laughs> oh, y'all, I'm sorry. Anyway, that still works, but I have not tried these. They are a smoking good deal. They have good reviews. Kevin, I don't know. They work with, uh, yeah, they work with Madam A and Google. Yes. From a voice standpoint, and and the product line may not be as robust as some of the other brands that you know, because I I know that in the U.S. they have a limited selection of their their products, like the total product line is not available. But I've I've looked into them myself on Amazon. I've seen these before, and they are typically much lower priced than uh, comparable brand names that you know. And based on the Tuya backend, I, I, I would buy one. I would try it. I don't think there's any reason to be concerned. The only caveat I will give you and I would give anyone this caveat, is for the outlets, just do it, man. I mean, knowing that the back end is Tuya and they're probably not selling your information, that's not a problem. When you're installing a smart switch, though, think about the fact that that's going to be in your wall possibly forever. And there you may have questions about the longevity, but if you if you feel good with like it being there for like three to five years, then you're probably fine. All right. Well, hopefully that helps you, Keith, and feel free to report back. You know, in a year, if this breaks, let us know and we'll we'll revise. Kevin, did you want to talk a little bit about last week's answer? Because I think we gave kind of an incomplete answer. Last week, we discussed how to automate a Zigbee light with a... Uh, Schlaglock. Schlaglock, yes. And with smart things, all, all of those components. And I had said to Bob, who had called in, that there is a custom device handler that you could install. I was actually incorrect. It's actually a third-party app that you install to your SmartThings app on your phone. And it uses the native Zigbee device handlers from Samsung. It just makes this connection for you. So you don't have to install anything on your SmartThings hub, which is actually a little more complicated. You just need to add a third-party app to your SmartThings app on your phone. So the solution is the same, but my explanation was incorrect. So there you have it, Bob. Hopefully you weren't wandering around going, ah, Kevin, you have lied to me. He didn't. Well, he fixed it. Okay. That concludes this portion of the show, but please stay tuned for John Usef, who is from GE Appliances. He's going to be talking about how GE Appliances views security, and you're going to want to stick around for it. Hey, 
everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is John Youssef, who is Executive Director of Embedded Software in the Smart Home Solutions Group at GE Appliances. Woo! Hello, John. How are you today? Hi, Stacey. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am really excited. I I, I think we're going to have a good conversation. So we're actually having this conversation because I had written about GE Appliances being the first company to adopt the new UL security rating for smart home devices. And I just wanted you to kind of talk me through how y'all chose that, why y'all chose that, kind of talk me through that process that got you involved in UL. Yeah, great. So, you know, when we think of security, we think one of the key aspects is transparency. So how do we let our consumers, which we call owners, know that we take security, security is always in the forefront, and we talk about our pillars as security by design, security by default, and doing penetration testing. But these concepts are kind of confusing to the average consumer. So we've always been looking for a way to really a way to really easily communicate security to our owners. So as we were looking through the different options, the UL verification IoT security program came to our forefront and we looked into it and we thought this is a, a really good way to to educate the consumers about security and let them know that we take security seriously. So the first thing we did was we read the white paper by um, UL and through that white paper, it kind of said, this is the, the standards that you want to meet so, or the different levels that you want to meet, the bronze through diamond. Then we had some communications with um, UL, and we came out that we felt and they felt what was appropriate for appliances was the gold level. We gave UL some of our appliances and, and devices to test. They did some testing. We talked about our documentation. We had a lot of conversations about what we think this requirement meant and how we met it. And then at the end of the day, we were verified to be gold. Obviously, you know, we have some aspects of the requirements that far exceed gold, but from a whole, uh, we, we meet the gold standard. Got it. And the gold is kind of in the middle and it's, it's a good standard. It has lots of things in there. Let's talk about how you decided that appliances fit at that level? Because I think understanding the risk profile of a device and also kind of maybe the data it collects, I, I'm putting words in your mouth. Talk to me about how y'all thought about how secure does this need to be? Because that's a hard problem. Yeah, that's, yeah, I agree. It is a hard problem. And we had lots of discussions, but you, you hit on the key aspect of what we looked at. What is the data that we're collecting, transmitting, storing, and how does that impact the consumer, right? What privacy levels do we need to achieve? What kind of uh, data do we have? Do we store? How do we tell the consumers we're using it? And if we give it to a partner? Um, so those are the things we looked at. And that's how we really honed in on, on the gold standard. Was there ever a question in your mind that maybe some appliances need more security than other appliances or kind of this idea that Maybe you'd go up or down a level depending on the function or, again, back to that data collection? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in the future, we have a lot of different products that we're developing and will release. You know, today we have a, a product called the Kitchen Hub. It has two cameras, but both of those cameras, all the data resides on the Kitchen Hub itself. It never goes to the cloud. 
And as we start to create um, different appliances that will send data to the cloud, if there's an opportunity to maybe capture someone's face or, you know, capture something that it really wasn't intended to capture, then those types of appliances will need a different level of verification. So we understand that. Today, what we did was that this is really our base infrastructure. We want to get that verified. We chose gold. And product by product, we'll have different levels of verification, again, depending on what data are we collecting. And just just to remind people, the Kitchen Hub, is that the giant screen that goes as part of my downdraft fan? Is that what I'm thinking of? Yes, that's today's version. It's uh, a vent hood which has a 27-inch Android display. So it has all the full functionality of an Android device. You can download from the Google Store. You can play videos. So it's really our, our first entry into like social cooking. So one of the cameras you can communicate to, let's say, your mom to get cooking recipes. There's a downward-facing camera that then shows what's cooking on the cooktop. And at CES, we announced that we are now working on the microwave version of that as well. For for those of us who do not like to cook on the stove, you're like, I will make some fancy microwave meals. Woo! <laughs> okay. yeah, that's usually the spot for the microwave. So that's what people really wanted to see was, you know, I, I, this is where I have my microwave. I love the product. If you make it a microwave, I'll, I'll buy it. So that's what we're doing next. Fascinating. All right. So you mentioned actually that the cameras and none of the data goes into the cloud. But in that case, the data is, it's not going into the cloud, but it is you're communicating that with another person and sharing that over the internet. It's just not getting stored. And that's the distinction you're kind of making there. Oh, right. And and since it's an Android device on the Kitchen Hub, it's really using the tools and the apps that are available through the Android store. So maybe you're communicating through just an app that you have that allows you to do face-to-face communication, like Duo. That's the app that you're going to use to communicate. Got it. Okay. So the other thing you could do is take a picture of what you're cooking. It gets stored on your device, and you can send that out any method that you want to send out, you know, through Twitter, through an email. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And let's talk about the, I want to call it the longevity part of this or the evolution of your security because securing something is not like a one and done thing. And my understanding is the UL certification requires you to come back and get recertified or what is the process there that, that makes sure that this starts secure and then remains so? Yeah. So I think there were two things that we really liked about the IOT security rating. One was that it did do a verification and you had to go yearly to review all of the security aspects of your devices again. So in order to maintain that rating, you had to, to do another review. The other thing is that it had the ability to grow as the kind of IoT vulnerabilities changed. This standard would change as well. So that was something that, that we really appreciated. It is not a static verification tool. It, it will be dynamic as the IoT vulnerabilities and threat vectors change. And this actually ties really closely into another issue that I think happens with appliances, which is, if all goes well, that they should last a decade, 15 years in my house, 
or, or that was the old standard. And I, I'm just curious as someone building connected appliances, how are you thinking about the rather short lifespan of something like even Android? I mean, that's a three to four year kind of support contract versus an oven hood that I don't know. I, I feel like that should last for quite some time. Yeah, we agree with you. We expect appliances to last 10, 15, 20 years. So everything that we do from a IoT perspective is updatable. So all of our software, both the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth wireless software, plus our core appliance software can be upgraded. So this is important for security and it's important to delight our owners with new features and functionality. So one thing that we always say, the benefit of connected is you buy an appliance, but it doesn't stop improving there with being connected to the internet, accepting uh, you know, software upgrades. You can then get added features through the life of your appliance. I I know that in the early days of the IoT, we talked about like, oh, we're going to have modules that you swap out and update. And I, I don't feel like that's something that's going to be possible, but maybe I'm wrong and it will be, or maybe you're just really future-proofing things as you design them. I don't know. Yeah. Our philosophy is always to try to future-proof. I mean, like, I think the concept of modules was more about the hardware. So our hardware from a, you know, a wireless perspective, technically is a module that you could take out of the unit, plug in a new module to get upgraded Wi-Fi, let's say, for example. But honestly, I don't think that infrastructure needs to change that often. So where we really think the benefit will be and future proof will be is the ability to update those software modules. I agree. Plus, you'll have all these crazy new features. I get very excited about crazy new features in my, maybe not appliances just yet, but, you know, in my, in my other devices. And this, this ties into this idea of security. We've talked about it on the device. UL also looks at it in the cloud, but broadly, can you talk to me about how y'all think about security when you're building what is hopefully going to be a kitchen ecosystem, right? So we've actually, you've talked about bringing in Android and other apps. And, you know, I know that there's lots of food recipe apps or maybe integrations with other tools. So how do you think about security beyond just the appliance, which is important, but are there other things or roles that we need to think about as we broaden that ecosystem? Right. So fundamentally, our concepts are security by design. So as we go through the process of, you know, designing something in-house or working with a partner, right, we have those security aspects throughout the program, throughout the development process. The other thing that we're doing is we say we're an open ecosystem, but only in the sense that, you know, we're willing to work with anyone, but it's closed in the sense that we control who we're partnering with. And, and the main reason we do that is from a security perspective, right? So before we do a partnership with, um, you know, someone like Drop from a recipe perspective, we want to make sure that any communication going to their cloud is secure. So 
when we went to UL, another benefit of the UL system was it wasn't taking individual components. It was taking that whole ecosystem. How does the data get created in the appliance, sent over the air to the cloud, sent back to the app, or sent to a third party? All of that needs to be reviewed. And and these verification programs through UL took into consideration the whole uh, ecosystem. And let's talk about the customer reaction. So I I remember talking to the CEO of iRobot, and he mentioned that when they did a lot of focus on security and privacy in their their box labeling and advertisements, that customers actually didn't buy the product. The speculation was that they were so confused or being reminded about security in a connected device just was like, oh, never mind. So I'm curious what the customer feedback has been and how you're communicating that. I think the benefit of this program, again, is its simplicity. And that's what makes, this is why I think it's going to resonate with the actual consumers, right? So from a customer perspective, as we work with Home Depot and Lowe's and our other customers, they value this. And it's a simpler story for their salespeople to tell. So I don't think it it works in the way that you described where it's going to be a negative. Because of its simplicity, it should be easier for the consumer to understand and thus make it easier for the consumer to make a, a decision about security, along with the features that come with the appliance itself. And, and that does get into this this idea of retailers. What do you think the role of retailers should be in pushing companies to make their products more secure? And how are you, how are you seeing that evolve? So it's about education. What we want to do is educate the re- retailers to say this is a feature of our appliances or a feature of any IoT device is the security protection. We know that consumers value security, they value privacy, but it may just be an issue of how do I know? So this is a tool we can work with retailers to say, here's a simple way to communicate this to to your consumers. So it's incumbent upon us, it's incumbent on you know people like you well to start to educate people along the chain you know, as they sell appliances and IoT devices to consumers. So this kind of goes back to the longevity thing, but it also goes to the kind of customer experience. And that is this idea that appliances are something that usually, if someone moves, they convey with the home, right? I might take my fancy oven hood with me, but probably not. How are you thinking about both communicating because that's an important thing, I think, with a connected product is communicating with owners when they need to do updates and that sort of thing. How do you think about making that easy when a home or appliance changes hands? As the home changes hands, the appliance inevitably will have a new owner, right? You'll have a new registration, you'll have a new account, right? And then once you have that new account, we'll always give you the opportunity to update your appliance with the newest firmware. So we do two things. One is we give the consumer the option to always update firmware. And we also have something that says, if this is an important security fix, we'll update the Wi-Fi software without um, interrupting anything that you would do from a normal perspective, a normal operating perspective of your appliance. What do you mean update the Wi-Fi software? 
So we have really kind of a distinction in our appliances. We have a Wi-Fi module. It has software. And then we have the appliance core firmware. It has software as well, right? So a lot of the security aspects are surrounded around just the Wi-Fi module. And we can update the Wi-Fi module with little to no disruption of the operation of the normal appliance. Oh, that's very smart. Yeah, so this would be most of the like malware and those types of security threats are going to be targeting the Wi-Fi module aspect as opposed to something like the the core functionality. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's kind of our, you know, when you talk about, you know, sec- you know, security by design and, def- you know, security in depth, you know, defense in depth, those are kind of the layers that we have. So we wanted to separate those two layers. The gateway into that appliance or the gateway to the malware is through that Wi-Fi module. Okay. And you see that in cars too. There's, there's usually the, I think of it as the core car functionality or brakes and all, and that's on Canvas. And that is an entirely separate system in most cases from things like the infotainment system that communicates out with the rest of the world. It doesn't mean that they can't have communication between them and get hacked because they can, but it's, it's an effort. We agree. That's, that's exactly how we have our architecture set up as well. Excellent. Okay. Do you think that going forward, it will be possible for consumers to buy non-connected appliances? We see with televisions, for example, pretty much every TV on the market is a smart TV. So I'm, I'm just curious, what is GE's appliances stance? I might be able to buy a dumb washing machine in five years. I don't know if you'll want to buy a dumb washing machine in five years. But there are certain um, washing machines that are still electromechanical, so those don't have the capability of having Wi-Fi module connected to an electronic control board. But in general, our our philosophy is we can add a lot of value to the current washing machine that you have if you get it connected. But you can still buy the unit and choose not to connect it. That's always an option as well. I did just buy a fridge, and it has an option to connect it. But I didn't, which was surprising to me. And you're going to be sad because it was an LG fridge, not a GE fridge. I'm so sorry. But the the rationale for connecting it was lame. And I was like, eh, no. So just a comment on that. So I feel, you know, it's incumbent upon the manufacturers to give you a reason to connect. But I also feel we're developing a platform. So maybe today your connected refrigerator doesn't give you all the value that you're looking for. But as we continually give it software updates, you'll may find a feature that says, ah, this is why I wanted to be connected. This is a, a benefit to me. It makes my life easier or more enjoyable to use the appliance. Yeah, I, I will hope for that. I, I remember the last time my prior fridge, when it, it had issues, I was like, oh, I wish you were connected so I could totally just like send the diagnostics to the factory and they could be like, this is what's wrong. I will fix it right now. Yeah, agreed. Today, that's probably the number one reason people want to get connected. It's that peace of mind to understand the appliance is operating correctly. And if it does have a problem, that data goes to the factory. The service technician is empowered with that data and can fix your appliance right the first time. All right. Well, and what keeps you up at night? It's always the unknown, right? So, we test for what we call known vulnerabilities, but it's always that what is the new 
you know, threat factor? What is the new vulnerability that we don't know about? And do we have everything in place to quickly resolve that issue, quickly update the consumer, and quickly communicate to the consumer? So it's always, you know, like we talked about earlier, these appliances will be in the home for 10 to 20 years, right? We have to make sure that we're always understanding what was the appliance that we built 20 years ago. How does it react to this new threat? And can we update that quickly along with everything from 20 years ago to what we just produced yesterday? All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I feel smarter and now a little bit guilty about not buying a GE fridge. Thanks again, Stacey. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.